following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Our world is always so rush, rush. We can never get any personal time to ourselves, let alone those that we love. Welcome to Might Radio with host Gabriella Von Ray. Our mission, to reintroduce kindness and compassion to our busy lives. Remember when life was so much simpler? Gabriella and her guests today will pick up the ball of human kindness and by doing so, empower you to make changes in your own life. And now, here is Gabriella Von Ray. Hi everyone and welcome to another exciting show of my radio. I am talking with a guest today, which is... His name is Nick Lowry, and he is a Hall of Famer of the NFL. I will let you tell uh, yourself, Nick, all about that, but I just want to make sure that everyone knows that the reason I asked Nick on this show is because I feel that he is a person who is definitely picking up the ball of human kindness because he's doing a, a movement that is happening in his area in Phoenix on anti-bullying. Welcome, Nick, to the show. Well, thank you, Gabriella, and I, I just I love what you're doing, and I, I think I have to say that kindness and happiness are the greatest forms of strength. We give kindness and happiness and share it with other people. That is not some liberal notion alone uh, that has, is not grounded in, in life. It's grounded in the most important thing, which is the human spirit where all true power is. I agree totally. I, I'm a big advocate for kindness and happiness. The two go hand in hand. So, Nick, um, for the listeners out there, tell us a little bit about your background and how you grew up because I got to understand that it's quite interesting. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we got into some of it. Um, I have a very different background, and I'm very proud of it, and all of us should be the different roots that, you know, from which we come. My, my mother's uh, father was, uh, helped ban- build the Bank of Egypt in Cairo, Egypt. He was a British diplomat. My mother's mother, my grandmother, was married in the Sudan in 1905, one of the only white women in the Sudan. My mother grew up in Cairo, Egypt, and went on t- at 14 to go to England and ended up in one of the first full classes of women at Oxford. My father uh, was from a cowboy side uh, in, in Salt Lake City, Utah. His other side of the family built uh, Memorial Hall at Harvard, um, and he uh, ended up flying in World War II, was a reconnaissance pilot in Germany, and then on the GI Bill went to Stanford and was accepted as in one of the first full classes at Fulbright Scholars and then into the CIA, where he was an expert on Russia and Eastern Europe. And, and I only found out three years ago, after my father passed away, that he wasn't just senior. He was head of station for the CIA in both London and in Bonn, Germany, in the late 60s. And, and then we came back and lived in the Washington area, right by Langley, Virginia. And I went to school at Potomac School in Langley, Virginia. Um, so a different background. Wow. 
It sounds fascinating because, first of all, I know Oxford University well, but the, one of the first women there. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> you must be. You must be. Then, when I hear that kind of background, are we scaring all our listeners by thinking that your entire family is very intellectual and very brainy? I think I can. Uh, if anybody listens for more than a couple of minutes, they'll realize that I'm, I'm just another dumb football player. But. You know, I think that I, I think, think the bottom so. line is I think the bottom line for all of us, hopefully, is that wisdom means nothing. If we think a degree means we have a wisdom, we know nothing. It's really just about learning how to be present in the moment to have a, a life connected to what matters. And, and what better than be connected to right now, talking to a brilliant woman who herself is such a combination of cultures. I think for anybody that knows that you have such a rich panoply of background in, in you that inspires you. I'm sure that your background coming from uh, several parts of the world only makes you more strong and more insightful. And so I'm excited to be in this interview as well. Yeah, I think when we, we are open to the world, the world becomes smaller and we're ready to accept it, which is part of our message with anti-bullying, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I, I think the message, uh, bullying, of course, is a sort of rallying cry today. People that are using uh, dysfunctional power and influence to crush and tramp down the human spirit and development and creativity and power of another person. I believe that um, really it's, a, it's simply a frozen um, dysfunctional stage of a young person who instead of discovering new levels of being able to express themselves verbally and in every other way and, and more clarity about who they are and what they really love doing, they, out of frustration, out of their inability to understand their own feelings and then express them, take them out on other people, whether it's just because their parents treat them that way or because they themselves don't know any other better way. And one role for, for me and my work is to help not only the people that have been bullied, but even the bully themselves realize that true heroism is about giving the power you have and sharing it with everyone around you. Yeah, absolutely. But tell me how you went from this amazing background into NFL first, and then we'll go straight into your foundation. Because well, <laughs> I, I don't see the connection with a background like that. How did you become a ball player? Well, um, my dad was in London, and I played. Uh, went to St. Paul's School, and then in Kensington, a brick Victorian building on Kensington High Street, which is now in Barnes, right on the in Hammersmith, uh, right on the on the river, the Thames. And um, I played a little rugby, tons of soccer, and that was the year 1966, which gives you an idea of how ancient I am. Uh, that England won the World Cup and what, that it was hosting, and um, so I, I loved kicking. I loved soccer. And I noticed I had this unique ability to kick, put a ball on the ground shaped like a football and kick it through some uprights. And then went to Germany for two years, did no kicking, and then in eighth grade came back to the United States. My father uh, went back to working in the CIA there in Langley that we see the pictures of, the, the George H.W. Bush Center for Intelligence, um, which I always find quite amusing. And um, then began to notice in football I could do the same thing. And so that's how I started and played five different sports. Um, but I did love, as in pitching and baseball, the kicker is on an island. The kicker has to learn how to function all by him or herself and handle a unique kind of pressure 
And I love the incredibly uh, significant challenge on both sides, the physical side to prepare and to actually do the, the kicking and the mental side of managing your state, managing your focus, managing your confidence as you get ready for those moments of truth, which I think is a nice analogy for people that want to take their lives to another level. Okay. Wow, I've never had a kicker explained like that. My my world is opening today. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing about sports. Okay, and then you became professional, right? Well, it wasn't an easy task. I didn't know I would play in the NFL. I had dreams like a lot of kids do, um, and I had a chance to be recruited. I was recruited by the big schools, but my school, St. Albans, we had um, Neil Bush, George W.'s brother, was on the basketball team with me, and uh, Ted Kennedy's son was a couple years behind me. And, you know, we were raised to be leaders. We were raised to believe that we had an obligation to do something great with our lives that would make a contribution. And uh, literally, my next-door neighbor, um, for 50 years, if you Google Nick Lowry and Byron White, uh, my, my next-door neighbor was a Supreme Court justice uh, back in 1962 who'd just been nominated by John F. Kennedy, had been a Rhodes Scholar in London, and uh, had met the Kennedys, and now here he was, having just left the Department of Justice, where he'd led the marshals into Selma, Alabama, and the civil rights marches for Bobby Kennedy, He'd just been approved as a Supreme Court justice where he would remain for 31 years. And uh, I grew up with this notion that uh, it was possible to do something that mattered with my life, but uh, it, what was what better role model than a man that was also <laughs> able to lead the NFL in rushing twice and then have a life completely different uh, with uh, robes on that, you know, was in many ways the swing vote on the Supreme Court for 30 years. Wow. Pretty interesting. And how did you go from there, from the NFL, straight into a foundation? I presume there were <laughs> years between that, no? Well, I, I went to Dartmouth College and uh, did quite well there, But um, and I uh, simply went through a, uh, a trek being cut by and trying out and being cut and rejected by eight NFL teams 11 times. And in between, Gabriella... I got a job working for Senator John Chafee of Rhode Island and, uh, and then with the Senate Commerce Committee working for Senator Bob Packwood on aviation deregulation because I didn't know I would make it. And, and that's why persistence is so important and such an important part of this piece of finding what really matters in our lives because only by hanging in there did on the 12th time I, I go from, you know, not being able to make it with any team to beating out arguably – the greatest kicker in the history of the game, a guy named Jan Stenerud, um, and uh, breaking all his records. And Jan remains, was the first kicker in the NFL Hall of Fame. There's only one right now. I'm in the Chiefs Hall of Fame. And, uh, and I continued in my off-seasons to go back to Washington in about two-thirds of my off-seasons and work there for four presidents, for uh, Elizabeth Dole with the Department of Transportation, Oh, yeah. For Eagleton studying the rise of Roosevelt, so it was a nice balance to have football for for most of the year, and then for four months I'd go back to Washington. It sounds amazing. But when I listen to you, you know, I almost I don't know if the listeners think the same. You 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 accomplish something great. Why suddenly out of there do you say my life? I mean, your life sounds perfect, and I know firsthand that 
the grass is never greener next door. It, it just doesn't work. But um, I can say that most people would say, why would you want to give back? Your, your life is full. It's going really great. Did something in you trigger? Was it your background? Was it something that was instilled in you that suddenly said, look at my life. It's fantastic. I'm happy. I'm fulfilled. I want to do this. I think um, we have to listen to the appetites and, if you will, the soulful aches in our bodies, the things that we know uh, are telling us something's missing. And I'll never forget, having made it in the NFL, Gabriella, mm-hmm. um, beating out the greatest kicker in the history of the game, and even breaking his records right from the start, um, I then um, was featured on 2020, that show on ABC. Uh, yep. I was in Sports Illustrated. I was in the Pro Bowl, the All-Star Game. I even kicked the game-winning field goal with Steve Largent holding uh, with all these Hall of Famers around me in the Pro Bowl in Hawaii. Should have been as happy as, as anyone could possibly be at this seminal mountaintop in my life. And as the locker room emptied out, I felt a palpable sense of Missing something, missing of, of something not being there, a sense of of uh, dissatisfaction, and I started to ask what possibly could be missing. I should be happy, and, and then it became so obvious at the age of 25, I had not invited my family, I had not shared this success with my parents, with my loved ones, with the people, the mentors, and the friends that would be there no matter what, in the good or the bad times, and I resolved then that really my happiness. Uh, getting back to kindness and happiness, um, had to include that my goals would not just be setting records, but sharing them with people that mattered. And otherwise it would feel empty, and it felt there was no greater emptiness. I, I Right now I can feel the emotion of that moment in the locker room. There is no greater emptiness than achieving a great goal and realizing how empty it is without, without being able to share it with people that you care about. Absolutely. I can definitely relate to that. Hold that thought, Nick. We need to go into a quick commercial break, I'm sorry. And we'll be right back, everyone. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. 
Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite twice every week, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety and on the Voice America Empowerment Channel every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Might Radio. Do you have a question or comment for our show? Perhaps you wish to share your own stories of human kindness. Please send an email to Gabriella Von Ray at gmail.com. That's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-A-V-A-N-R-I-J at gmail.com. Now, back to Might Radio with Gabriella Von Ray. So hi, everyone, and for the listeners that are just starting to listen to the show, I have Nick Lowry an NFL player, and a kicker, which I just learned. (laughs) Nick, are you there? I'm here. Okay, super. We just left off at a really uh, important and I would say a pivotal point in your life where you have this epiphany in your locker room. And I just want to go back to that for a second because I can imagine that For anyone that's listening, we all have moments in life that we know that we need to follow our hearts. We we feel that emptiness. But we also sometimes go into the wrong direction. So for the listeners out there, tell me how, while doing it, so while pulling in your loved ones, how were you able to do it? How were you able to actually really listen to your heart and not stay in the empty space? Well, I, I think listening to your heart, um, a lot of research has shown, and we'll go into this later, but the heart has 5,000 times the magnetic pull of any other organ, including the brain and the body. And uh, listening to one's heart is not as difficult as it may sound. It's a habit. It's really just simply honoring who you are. And, and, and knowing that listening to my heart meant pulling myself towards my more of myself, more of what mattered, more of God's gifts to me, so not just a narcissistic journey. And, and so really it's just channeling the pain or discomfort in the right direction. I, I think we all know thousands of people, the same thing has happened to two different people, for instance. One chooses to say, this is the reason why I'm miserable and I have a great justification of feeling miserable. And the other person says... I w- this is the reason why I won't perpetuate the same mistake. And so for me, it was channeling that sense of emptiness and that disconnect between the goals that were achieved and the sense of um, completion and fulfillment that I, I could tell was simply non-existent and, and pull myself towards what mattered. So I started a program called Kick With Nick for Cerebral Palsy. My father's sister had cerebral palsy and yet had become a professional writer, gotten her college degree, and simply took what she had, focused on what she could do, and made the most of it. We, we all know about Helen Keller. We, we know people in our lives that seem to have almost nothing and yet are towering mountains of humanity and spirit. And so... Kick with Nick was so fantastic because I would meet young people who had victories just learning every day how to 
tie their shoelaces or, or how to help their mother with the dishes. Or, and, and, and yet they were more happy, more, more grounded than I had tasted in my own life. And so it was a wonderful way to stay balanced to get away from the narcissism and the whining, oh gosh, that our socks weren't properly cleaned or our food wasn't quite as fresh, and to focus on what I could do. And so that's, I think that was, that's just a self-sustaining lesson, you know, that we need to proactively design our lives to channel our energies where we can help people and also learn to get better at helping people. And in turn, we help ourselves because that wisdom obviously has to first be applied in our own lives and our own values. Yeah, and I also believe that um, just to comment on, on your thing there about helping, I think the moment you help people, you learn yourself much more than the people you're helping, actually. And most people don't realize that. The volunteer work is part of the system and the education in Vancouver, where what I call home in Canada, and it's amazing uh-huh. that... You cannot get a high school diploma without doing, and and I might make a mistake here, 200 to 400 community hours. And it's amazing to do that because I've always done it because the Dutch are into volunteering. But when you do that, it is when you're giving to someone, I really believe that you as a person are learning and growing much more sometimes than the person that we think we're helping. You know, um, I worked and helped launch uh, AmeriCorps for President Clinton, and I worked with a wonderful friend of mine, uh, then a White House fellow named Rob Gordon, and and we have these discussions all the time. How here it was, 1993, and now it's 20 years later, and yet those lessons are as rich and as powerful and stimulating now, or more so than they ever were. So. When one looks back and sees these things, even in school, when it's required, so some conservatives would say, oh, it's required, so it's not really service. We are required to inspire our young people, help them learn to inspire themselves. And so those references that they gain through community service hours in the United States, like you mentioned in Vancouver, those are the best kinds of lessons because they integrate an idealistic notion of what is the good with the practical side of working with other people that may not even like us, may not even want us to help, may be from very different cultures, may not trust us whatsoever, and to learn to develop a common vision and then practically to plan and to work it out and to measure something real that you've added to a community, those skill sets are the most sublime and difficult in life. And they they inspire the best in each student and they never stop learning. That is a lesson that keeps on giving. Yeah, absolutely. I really agree. So what, you know, when I listen to you again, what made you in your foundation go the direction of bullying? Is it because it's so predominant and it's a true epidemic today in the world, not just in North America? Because I cannot imagine that you've ever been bullied. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was I was bullied a little bit. I mean, I think there are times when we have to learn to stand up and protect ourselves, too. You know, it's not just looking for someone else to help us, but um, it really is a developmental um, stage that's connected to leadership and diversity work I've done with American Indians across the country um, and looking at, once again, that <laughs> developmental skill of being able to articulate our feelings, et cetera. And it's become an, apode- an, an absolutely epidemic 
uh, in here in, in Arizona, there's, I think, 40% of 7th and 8th graders are bullied, 28% of students aged 12 to 18 in the state, and um, those that are bullied, um, some can be very severe, add cyberbullying to it, and there's a whole new group of people that are bullying psychologically. And so we have to um, do something about that that uses the best in our skills to help kids and the teachers um, seize this moment as a teachable moment to um, help them learn how to express themselves better. Otherwise, the kids that bully are highly likely to commit worse uh, uh, crimes or acts and, and much more likely to go to prison, <laughs> lead Absolutely. dissatisfactory lives. And the kids that are bullied are... We know. We see suicides. We see depression. Um, you know, we see very tragic consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I personally say always a comment that shocks people, uh, especially the media, and that um, I always am of the opinion that as long as we don't go to the source, and the source is the bully, and we don't teach kindness to this bully, but all we do is punishment, which at a certain level is also necessary because there are consequences to our behavioral patterns. But unfortunately, I find in America when I go from school to school is that we seem to vilify the bully and then glorify the victim, and we are not solving the issue, the real underlying issue at all. Because in my opinion, and I would love your reaction on it, the bully and the victim are mirror images of themselves. Well, I love what you just said. Uh, there's a book by John Bradshaw who had a show on um, called the, the Family, and the book is called The Same Thing, and he looked at the family as a system. And every role that is played out through our families, if you think about this, it's so true of sitting around a table, let's say there's a mother and father and two or three children, and if, if we think that the father changes, everything will be fine, or the, the black sheep daughter or the son changes there won't be any sustainable change until everyone around that table changes their behavior and their awareness. Otherwise, the same roles will reemerge and be repropagated again. So the same thing is true, I believe, in a system larger, if you will, in the community like a school, where if we only address the bullies or only address those that are being bullied, the same problem will reemerge. Because uh, in this lifetime, call it karma, whatever, I may be the bully. The next lifetime or the next experience and role I play may be the exact opposite, where I'm the one that is victimized, and we we don't perpet we we find ourselves perpetuating the same system, rather than teaching everyone to have a role. The bystander that watches is just as guilty if they don't intervene and they don't you know try to be part of the solution. I've honed the word in the last year that I've been out there, which is called an active witness. I think a bystander needs to become an active witness. In Europe, we would consider this punishable when you're a bystander and you watch something terrible happen. Well, um, all we have to do is know what happened with, uh, with Hitler in Europe and, of course, even with the Pope, uh, knowing that uh, the papal leadership and during the rise of Hitler uh, were not active bystanders. They, uh, they basically uh, got out of the way and did not, as far as I know, do anything significant or systemic 
to to uh, stop that tide, and that may be something hurtful for people to hear, but the the fact is that we all have to take stands, we all have to actively be leaders and say this behavior should be encouraged, or we will do our part to communicate and to discourage it. Okay, but what can we, we meaning you, me, and all these foundations, all these organizations out there on anti-bullying, apart from becoming an active witness, what can we do to take fear away from these youngsters? Because it's all about fear. What can we instill in them, bring into the school system, into their homes especially, because often this is missing too, like you said, if one of the systems isn't working within a family. What can we bring as role models, as leaders to these organizations that don't have money to actually take the fear of these children away? Well, um, the Alwayas, which is Alwayas system, has, uh, it looks at the whole school. As we said, the whole school has to be part of it, the entire community. Um, that everybody has a role. Uh, okay. we, we need to, first of all, be on the same page. We need to say this is important enough to have some sort of written curriculum where everyone participates. Having a school assembly is a start, but it's, it's, that's all it is, is a start. Mm -hmm. The faculty, the staff must be able to identify and clarify and define what is bullying and what is merely teasing. Because teasing is, is sometimes healthy. Teasing is, can be a humorous thing. We don't want people to suddenly turn around and uh, vilify anyone that is interacting with others in a playful way. And being able yeah. to distinguish those things is so important. We have to have uh, links to mental health services uh, for not only the victims but, but for the, the bullies themselves. Um, we have to document incidents. We have to be able to track them, notice if we're improving or not. Uh, we have to have parental and uh, students organizations be able to report incidents. Um, and then we have to have governing bodies that, uh, that understand they have a role in um, <clears throat> working more closely with principals so that the principals and the teachers don't feel isolated as well. Okay. Would, would you tell the website of this, this um, organization that you were just talking about? You said the, that... The site? Yeah. Oh. The name of the organization, well, here, the one I'm working with in Arizona is called Stop Bullying AZ. The model and the, and the whole curriculum is Alwayus, O-L-W-E-U-S. And okay. uh, it's very effective, um, you know, but I think it really starts with and ends with creating dialogues that increase the um, capacity of each student to express their feelings um, and to communicate and resolve disputes. And it also is creating a culture of respect where everyone is important in the school. So my passion, by the way, is that when you look at what's happened recently, a lot of this has to do with varsity athletes. Mm -hmm. So why not inspire varsity athletes like the ones at Queen Creek High School to reach out to the marginalized non-athletic students and say, my, um, my best leadership is not what I do on the field, but how I reach my hand out to those uh, that I don't know and simply engage them and make them important as well. Because 
everyone at the school is important, not just me. I may have that importance now as a football star, but it means nothing if I don't use it to share, once again, with others that aren't part of that fabric. Yeah, but in this multicultural world, and I've been in Phoenix, I talked to one of the schools there, um, the children have a really, really hard time, and I say children, but I really mean students. They're from any age, literally, to the senior in high school. They seem to not be willing to embrace their diversity and their uniqueness. Does your system help in that level, how, how to embrace and how to accept that? Can you, can you repeat the question again, please? Well, I find that, especially in this multicultural world, we pretend that we all are tolerant. Uh, I've never heard such a silly word because... I hate the word tolerance, by the way. Thank you. I I, I was saying silly because I was trying to be kind on radio. (laughs) But I agree totally with you wholeheartedly. I think it's crazy because it's like saying to children, well, we'll accept the peas on our plate, but we're not going to eat them anyway. So I find that one of the things that's really missing in these children today is to embrace their unique diversity. How can a school system teach that when that's really, really lacking in their confidence and part of who they are? I I give you the, the example, Nick. If I don't accept that I have one leg in the East and one in the West, I will always struggle which culture I actually fit into. So how do you do that? I did it. It took me till 40 um, because when someone went up to me and said, you're Indian? I went, no, I'm not. I'm Dutch. Can't you see? <laughs> <laughs> of course nobody could see. But but I didn't have it in my head that, you know, I just thought they can see it because you believe so wholeheartedly that you've adopted a new culture. But you cannot erase your DNA. You cannot. And until you embrace, it's like, if I'm, I am, by the way, really short. I'm like a shrimp. If a kid says every day, hey, shorty, I want to play with you. Now, I call that slight teasing because it's up to me to say, yeah, it's up to me to say to the kids, listen, I really hate that word because I am really short. Could you call me something else? And to tell you the truth, he went from shorty to shrimpy. And I appreciated it much more. Um, so it, it just <laughs> Others depends. might not have liked it, but that's what worked for you. It, it apparently worked. I thought a shrimp was alive and kicking, so it's good enough for me. Um, but, but you see, it's all in asking. But I didn't embrace that I do have origins that are not European. And the mm-hmm. only way to do it is to actually look at yourself, really look at yourself and say, who the heck am I? And when I started doing that, the whole world opened. Well, because and that there are goes to the notion that, that, goes to the no- that there are things that are totally inherent. And if they're inherent, you can push them away all you want, and, and you'll appreciate this analogy with your sports. But like a boomerang, a frisbee, it comes right back at you to hit you and to bite you. I always say to the child that is actually obese and fat, has your, have your parents ever told you that it's okay to be fat? And the child always tells me no. So how do you want this child to actually embrace what he or she is? You can't pretend it doesn't exist. You can't pretend that I don't have a brown skin because I do. So my question to you is in your system, 
something uh, in, in development for teachers to handle this. Because I think the teachers that are seeing this diversity have no idea how to handle it, how to guide that young youngster into a positive conversation. Well, I think it's, number one, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's the simple thing of giving permission to the group and the individual to talk about it and to give it, uh, create a safe place where discussing how different one is um, is okay. And, and, and suddenly, through the discussion of difference, the different, um, each person begins to notice the commonalities more than the difference. Um, because they each have to negotiate those things that make them feel different and separate and yet make it work in their own lives and, of course, how they interact with the group and how difficult that is, at the, especially at the stage where it's 7th and 8th grade and you're going through puberty and, and you're going into early adulthood. You want to be and you've, you're shown 20,000 murders a week or whatever it is and you're shown, you know, sex acts all the time. And you're seeing people do uh, so-called adult things um, that don't look much different from you. It can be a very confusing um, journey. And so part of it starts with simply creating dialogue so that each person is comfortable speaking about themselves first. And I guess that's the first step of what we call public speaking, the greatest fear of all after death. <laughs> is okay. that the group feels safe to talk about who I am. And what we do with American Indians in our work with a program called New Extraordinary Leadership at Dartmouth College is we've seen that once a young person's comfortable with who they are, they then can allow other people to be comfortable with who they are. Absolutely. It's when they feel strong and prideful about their cultural roots as an Apache or as a uh, Muslim from Pakistan. We've had uh, three from Pakistan last year at Dartmouth. They ended up being some of the best public speakers we've ever had. We had a young lady who is a very deep, devoted Muslim who won our award as the best speaker. And she said, the way I've learned leadership here has changed forever the way I will lead um, because she now uh, engages others not like her much more proactively, much less judgmentally, um, yet never giving up or sacrificing her pride in where she comes from. And the more pride and, and awareness and acknowledgement she gives herself, the more she can give to others. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. That's my own journey. And I think for all of us, that's our journey. But our big problem, I think, right now in America is we're losing kids every day, really every day, to suicide, which is now has the horrible new name called Bullyside. And we have almost no tools to stop it. And I really mean that because when we are, when you really research every single suicide that happens, most of these children have gone to an adult. And the adult can be a principal or a vice principal. And this is not to say anything bad about schools. But I think they're overwhelmed and they don't have the time and the infrastructure and the money needed to handle this. What is your, because you've talked a little bit about government and Washington, D.C., on a federal level, what could we do to change the laws to actually aid these educators? Well, I would first start by saying, frankly, I don't hold a lot of faith 
that if we start with the federal government right now, they can get anything passed. So I think we have to start with showing <laughs> it just they just can't. I and can't, frankly, I can't not, not I, laugh because it's true. The, it's a lack of leadership on both sides. It's just awe-inspiring. When I think of Senator Chafee, who is a Republican in a Democratic state in Rhode Island, how he could work with Democrats and Senator Packwood, et cetera, and yet now those people are so vilified because they actually do something called leadership. They lead by solving problems, not by honoring and putting, getting on your knees for your party. And uh, because our party is every citizen, not just Democrats, not just Republicans. Otherwise... Why not have a civil war between Democrats and Republicans? But, Nick, this touches every human being. It's either our children, it's either our grandchildren, or it's a child of our best friend that we know. This, this is yes. something, I mean, I, I don't care about Republicans or Democrats. This is something, if you take that, that away, any congressman has a child out there that he knows lost their lives to this. Well, I'll give you an example of what's happening here in Arizona. Um, <clears throat> there is a conservative organization uh, that um, w we had met, Nicole and myself. Uh, I, uh, Nicole Stanton had met with uh, this group. Um, I've heard about it, and, and uh, the head of the Senate Committee on Education has a child that is autistic and was very supportive of our work because not only um, gay students but developmentally disabled students, a rich um, variety of students are bullied for different reasons. And this ed legislator was very supportive. Then suddenly, a 501c3 so-called nonprofit, which is not legally allowed to lobby, met with the same legislator, and some sort of major threat um, was able to um, discourage that same legislator, the head of a committee on education for the state, from even being willing to meet with other people to hear, just to simply hear, not to vote in a certain direction, but to simply hear about the problem. We have got a huge problem when we shut down discussion. That is bullying. That is, is institutionalized political bullying. And, uh, you know, parties, if you will, are bullying by threatening to remove all their funding and support for one candidate or throwing it all to another just because of a position on one particular issue. Having said that, we have to walk district by district, school by school, and get each organization to be on the same page, to agree that the all-wayist system is as good as there possibly could be, um, to spend a little bit less time starting our own programs, and a bit more of looking what is already there and using those things that have been measured over 40 years, not simply one or two, but also honoring any impetus to try to get involved. But it still comes back to um, encouraging students to communicate and giving more vehicles for them to express themselves and honoring those students that use their stage to reach out to those that are marginalized. That's why I think we have this narcissistic cult with athletes. We can use the athletes, like at Queen Creek High School, who got behind Shai Johnson, who was developmentally disabled, started simply sitting with her at lunch. And not only did they stop bullying her, but the culture of bullying at Queen Creek shut down significantly, if not completely. So simple acts sometimes. It's not that complicated. The simplest acts are the bravest acts. And it, sometimes it's simply the beautiful act of reaching out to someone who's lonely, and left alone and saying, hey, how are you? 
My name is Nick. Tell me about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree totally. I think the Zero Tolerance Project in Fresno, in that high school that I just came from, they are um, the juniors. No, what is that? Grade 11 and grade 12 are the leaders, mm -hmm. and they go around... Um, finding basically people like you just said that sit alone and sit with them. They're not, uh, not all of them are athletes, but they're all considered leaders within yes. their own class and they yes. go sit with other people and talk to them. And, but the child does not always, um, feel safe. I mean, I have heard that, but I told them to not give up and just to keep going until the child actually starts trusting them, right? Because the first right. time when a senior yes. student suddenly sits with you in the cafeteria, yes. you're yes. amazed that you get two seconds attention. Mm -hmm. So I, I told them just keep going at it because I think it's really good. And they're all the time looking for new leaders because, of course, by the time that they're seniors, they leave school and they graduate. So it's also per, apparently part of them to find new leaders in their place so that the school atmosphere and culture can truly change. Well, the interesting thing is when we look at who ends up being the great leaders of change, they often were those that were marginalized. They often were the nerds. They often were the ones that didn't fit and have great social skills. They often were the ones that didn't even graduate. Um, but they had a uniqueness. Um, I love... Uh, the the channel USA that you know that simply celebrates characters. You know it takes. I don't like the phrase so much. It takes a village, but I know what they're trying to say. But it takes a, a rich uh, a tapestry of characters that bring their own unique traits, personalities, skills, perceptions, and that group, that diverse group. Like, frankly, the dog, the mutt, that has many different influences, or like you and I that are mutts in our own way, um, we bring more to the table. <laughs> we have a strength and a, and a resilience um, that would not otherwise be there because we have so many different rich um, sources to draw from. Yeah, we do. We definitely do. But, you know, when I, I know the sentence that you mean that it takes a village to, to raise a child, but I come at one question here. I pause at something that I have never seen before, and I think it's only getting worse, and I'm not sure where it comes from. And you being American and having lived in different cultures, maybe you know where this comes from. I meet children today that say that in the bullying part, other people, other children tell them that they're not worthy of living. Where do you think our culture went wrong? Where, where did this come from? I am mind-boggled at it. Well, I, I think that we have um, a bizarre notion of violence um, that is perpetrated in the media, in the television shows, where it's faultless violence and it's consequenceless violence. People are killed and it's okay, it doesn't really matter. Sustained by these computer games where killing and chopping off people's heads and dismembering them is, is just a game. And we desensitize. Uh, so I, I think we have created our own, um, you know, our own uh, danger, our own insensitivity. And the only 
antidote to insensitivity is uh, the true strength of, of creating um, value in each individual. Um, I think that kids that say you are not worth living usually do it through the Internet. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult to look at somebody face-to-face and do that, especially if the others around it won't tolerate it. I've been uh, told the that they do it both. They do it both, yeah. and they yes. they actually really tell someone how to hang themselves. I mean, they they literally Google it and they give it to the kid. And uh, I mean, if I was tomorrow eight or nine, this would be really hard. Toxic. To take. Absolutely. I, I, I would have a hard time, and I've been bullied a lot. But that yeah. I would find incredibly difficult. And I'm wondering if. Uh, you touched upon it earlier if our TV media has something to do with it. I mean, I, I don't have time to watch TV. I, I grab CNN from time to time <laughs> and all that stuff and BBC World and, and I'm done and I'm already somewhere else. But uh, these reality shows, I did try to watch once or twice something called Snooky, but I must honestly admit, after two minutes, I had to change channels. I was not sure what it was about. I, I, I truly believe if we could measure IQ, most of these um, shows, if anything, diminish IQ and diminish creativity. We go back to a culture that does not honor creativity. Sir Ken Robinson talks about this, how uh, kids in, in kindergarten measured for genius-level um, creativity Ninety-seven percent measure as having potential genius-level creativity. By the by, the third grade, that's down to fifteen, twenty percent. So when we turn, we literally, uh, like Kurt Vonnegut's book, that uh, he, he talks about going back to uh, sort of re- revising and going in reverse in evolution. Uh, I, I think in some ways we are reversing ourselves. We're becoming more stupid, more ignorant, even as we have more information. And um, the, the only ones that we have to blame are ourselves. We can blame the system, but ultimately each individual act can do a tremendous amount of good. And I think when the system attempts to tell us directly and indirectly and in person that we should kill ourselves or that we don't matter, we have to stand up for those that are being dealt with that way, support them, find caring adults for them, but also in our own way, we have to be the ones that uh, don't perpetuate it and don't permit it. If we don't take action, if we think someone out there has to solve the problem, we will never solve this problem. True, but then I don't understand when I hear about ratings, right? How can, how can one billion Americans or worldwide watch something like that when you mm-hmm. say, and I agree with you, it's really dumb, and most people that you speak to say it's really dumb. Well, we you know, watch. every statistic, every statistic can can be made to say certain things. I think that that people that watch that, I would I would worry about, but I would also choose to look at them as what they do the rest of their day as well. Some people might watch that program for ten minutes, and it's sort of, you know, their escape. And uh, and that's as long as that's in. As long as that's in the context that they're building themselves emotionally, spiritually, physically elsewhere, that's not such a bad thing. It's when the only source of information and the only thing that they find entertaining is something that is really almost Neanderthal-like that you have to worry that they ultimately are not putting themselves in a place where they can learn and grow, test themselves, uh, and uh, and prosper. Um, 
um, in a way that will make themselves proud when they look back on their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're coming slowly to an end. Do you have advice for the educators out there? Because of all the states, I've heard that uh, California is is the worst hit with everything going on with anti-bullying. What would your advice be out there for the educators listening to the show? Um, I'm going to go back to my mantra that um, certainly go to Stop Bullying AZ to look what we're doing and look at the all-the-way-S-O-L-W-E-U-S system. A lot of free materials, um, uh, just a tremendously effective program that cuts down bullying in half immediately and, uh, and once again reverses the culture of what heroism is, what leadership is, what service is, So it could actually be used, this challenge, to unify the school. But it takes, uh, we've noticed in schools that are doing poorly, um, the unifying ingredient is poor leadership at the top. You have to, have to make sure your principals own this, because without the principal saying we're going to make a difference, um, the teachers that are inspired to make a difference get shut down as well. So leadership at the top, absolutely, in this case, with the principals, giving principals what they need, which often is not money. It's simply being uh, aware of the always program and instituting it and holding them accountable to follow through on the steps, not just with, you know, fundraising or or pep-raising assemblies. Yep, and inspiring the students to become leaders, right? Well, when we ask more of the students in education, when we tell them we want, we expect, and we know you have greatness in you, they always always rise up. They yeah, rise they up in rise. their expectations of themselves. They rise up in their creativity, and we have to reward that. And that's what I'm dedicated to, and I know you're dedicated to, so that government, whether whatever it does, we know we each can do something. And that's where I think America will regain itself is simply by getting reengaged. And I really appreciate the fact that you're doing that on a consistent basis because that's what, that's what we don't have <laughs> is consistency um, in terms of these messages. I appreciate your, your work in that. Yeah, I appreciate your work too, and especially being on this show. I have one last question for you. With all you have done and all you've been, how would you most like to be recognized as a person? Um, uh, I would like to uh, be recognized by um, the phrase from warrior to magician that I took the shoulder pads and the armor that um, taught me so much as an athlete and I learned to remove them to um, become a healer. And I think that as each of us goes through the football field of our own lives where we're battered like bumper cars emotionally and physically, that we learn to strengthen ourselves with what really matters so much so that we focus on the greatest gift and the greatest satisfaction which comes from healing, and in, in healing others, uh, we heal ourselves. In healing ourselves, we increase our capacity to help everyone. Yeah, absolutely. That is um, that is a true statement, and I hope that the listeners out there will be inspired to become active witnesses and understand that every single human being has knowledge to give to another person. Can I give you my uh, website, yes. by the way? Yes, go ahead. 
Yeah. yeah. My website uh, is nicklowry.org or nicklowryfoundation.org. That's N-I-C-K-L-O-W-E-R-Y, nicklowry.org. And uh, you'll see connections to the different programs, we, but they're all connected to um, simply inspiring cultures of leadership, diversity, and respect to unlock each young person's unique creativity and power. Fantastic. And, Nick, I will make sure that you get a link and that you're able to download the show and put it on your own website and diffuse it through social media in a positive way. <laughs> and I will do the same. And thank you so much for being on our show. Well, thank you and bless you, and I look forward to staying in touch with you, too. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Thank Next you. week there will be another Mind Radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you again for joining us this week. Might Radio with Gabriella Von Ray can be heard every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week. And until our next show, think of a random act of kindness that you can perform. Music.